You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's almost here. This weekend is live stream for The Cure, the fourth annual effort to raise money for cancer research. The goal this year is $10,000. I'll be kicking off Saturday morning at 10 a.m., 3 p.m. GMT, by reading a section of the Your Brain on Facts book, one of the topics that has never and will never be on the podcast. I know money is tight right now. I challenge each one of my listeners to donate $1 for each person they can name that has struggled with cancer. Imagine how much good we could do all together. Get all the information you need at livestreamforthecure.com. In the early 1920s, horticulture teacher Art Combe and some students from the White River Agency School on the Fort Apache Indian Reservation decided to explore an abandoned sandstone cave. Deep in the cave, safely nestled on a natural rock ledge, Combe found a tiny ancient bottle inside a basket woven from strips of yucca. When he tipped the bottle out into his hand, bright red watermelon seeds poured out. He took them home and planted them, and was rewarded with fruits that had not been seen for generations. Crookneck-handled watermelons. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A seed is a little package of nutrients that sustains a baby plant once it germinates. Okay, seeds, you may be saying to yourself. Little things that come in a paper packet for a buck fifty. How is she going to make this interesting? No effort required at all on my part. There are more things on heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in your philosophy. So let's start small. The smallest seeds in the world belong to orchids. They're not much bigger than a speck of dust, literally, only about 50 microns or 5 one-hundredths of a millimeter across. In terms that are easier to visualize, the finest human hair is about 17 microns across. Also, micron and micrometer are the same thing I just learned. With orchids, it's all about quantity. One particular tropical species can contain almost 4 million seeds per plant. Tiny and light is the way to go for orchids, because their seeds are dispersed by the wind. The lighter you are, the farther you can go, so the less likely you are to compete with the parent plant for resources. The seed coat for an orchid is only one cell thick, and it traps air inside to make it like a tiny balloon around the soon-to-be plant, which lets it travel even farther on the air, and, as a bonus, allows them to float. Scientists have found seeds from a particular species hundreds of miles away from the parent plant. You'd be forgiven for thinking orchids must spread like dandelions, but orchids are epiphytes, plants that grow on other plants, usually a tree. 
and they need mycorrhizae fungus for their roots. Finding the right tree and the right fungus severely limits how many seeds will become new orchids, hence the massive number. And because the seeds are so tiny, less of the parent's plant resources has to go into making each one, allowing it to make so many. On the opposite side of the seed size spectrum is the coco de mer, or coconut of the sea. Found only in the Seychelles, an archipelago off the east coast of Africa, coco de mer palms produce the largest, heaviest seeds in the world, which also amusingly look like a shapely zoftic butt, from which they get their nickname, the love nut. How big are these thick boys? Up to a foot and a half or half a meter long, and weighing as much as 88 pounds or 40 kilos. It takes six to 10 years for the fruit containing this seed to ripen. And once they drop from the tree, hopefully not on anyone, the seeds take another two years to germinate. The Coco de Mer palms put far more resources into seed production than other palm trees. Their huge leaves also act as rain funnels, providing a steady source of water and flushing nutrient-rich organic material down to the base of the tree. We know how the seeds got so big, but do we know why? Researchers think the dense, shady conditions and a lack of animal seed dispersal informed their evolution. The seeds of their mainland cousins are spread by elephants, but you don't get elephants in the Seychelles. When not relying on animals for dispersal, there's no need for the plant to keep its seeds at an edible size. Bonus fact, avocado pits are so huge because they used to be distributed by prehistoric ground sloths. If only there was some way to tell the plants to get with the times. For tiny new coco de mer trees, competition for sunlight is intense, so huge seeds mean more fuel to keep the young plants going until they can grow tall enough to get to the sun. Sadly, and you can probably finish this sentence for me, the coco de mer is endangered, not only from the usual pollution and land clearing, but because people keep taking the seeds home as souvenirs. Right now, there are only about 9,000 coco de mer trees left. One thing there is more of, thankfully, are supporters over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Welcome and sincere thanks to Lorelai, Denise, and Colton. Like all our members, they are currently getting all of the perks of every level until the lockdown is lifted. Perks like a bonus mini-episode about the second MGM lion, Jack. What makes him so special? Only members will know for sure. Thanks also to user LBB0122 for their 5-star review gem of a podcast. I honestly have no idea how I stumbled upon Moxie's podcast, but I'm so glad that I did. I'm currently listening to all the back episodes as I type this. All episodes are well-researched, well-written, and expertly delivered. Thank you very much for creating this podcast. And thank you, TK421, I mean LBB0122. Remember, if you'd like to hear your opinion read on the show, leave a review on your listening app of choice. We've touched on seed dispersal a bit. It wouldn't matter how well designed a seed was if it had no way to get where it was going. You're probably familiar with a few methods already. 
Some plants rely on the outside of animals, as anyone who's ever pulled burrs from their pet's coat or their socks can tell you. Many plants rely on their fruit being eaten by animals to move their seeds around. Some plants want their seeds to be dropped as the animal eats, but some are counting on them being dropped afterwards. So these seeds have a tough outer coat to protect them from the digestive process. Other seeds actually require digestion in order to sprout. The hard seeds of blackberries, for example, are designed to wake up from dormancy after being abraded by the grit in a bird's gizzard. Stomach acids and digestive enzymes break down the hard seed coat to make the seeds more permeable to water to help them sprout. And of course, being deposited in a steamy pile of fertilizer doesn't hurt anything either. Birds and mammals don't have the market cornered on seed dispersal. In South America, the tucum palm actually relies on a fish, a fruit-eating fish. Take a moment to absorb that concept. Tucums grow in the largest freshwater wetland in the world, in a Brazilian section of the Amazon rainforest. Annual rainstorms flood the region, and that's when the tucum palm drops its fruit and the Paku fish are waiting. For those unfamiliar, Paku are a giant cousin to the piranha, with bizarre and unnecessary human-looking teeth. Paku love the palm fruit so much that fishermen use it as bait. Scientists weren't completely sure if the Paku were really doing much to spread the seeds, or if the fruit-eating was just because. Over several seasons, a team of ecologists checked the guts of about 70 fish and found that nearly three-quarters of them had at least one seed in their digestive tract. One fish had more than 140 seeds, many of which were still intact, meaning they would be able to sprout after the fish had pooped them out and the flood water had receded. The scientists also checked the feces of other animals that lived around the palms, but no intact seeds were found. Either the palm fruit wasn't a popular menu item, or the seeds didn't survive the digestive tracts of terrestrial animals. This paragraph is going to take the same turn as the Coco de Mer. Humans are overfishing the Paku, especially the biggest ones, which are the ones that can eat and distribute the most seeds. If the Paku go, that could spell real trouble for the Tucum palms that depend on them. But why rely on birds and fishes when you can have seed babies that fly? Equipped with parachutes or wings, gliders or helicopters, a diverse group of plants have adapted for wind dispersal. Each tiny dandelion fruit has a feathery pappus to help it catch a breeze when you make a wish. Side note, yellow dandelions are the first major source of nectar for bees in many areas each spring, so please don't be in such a hurry to mow them. Whirlybirds from the maple tree, which are so fun to toss in the air and watch spiral down, are winged fruits called samaras. Other seeds have papery edges and even full wings to help them disperse. The seeds of the climbing Alcimistra gourd of the Malay archipelago have a wingspan of 5 inches or 12 centimeters across. Animal seed dispersal may seem like a system in which the plants are a passive participant and the animals the active one. There is a system in which the plants actually take the lead. To tell you more about that, please welcome my guests from 
the Better Than Human podcast. I'm Jennifer, and this is my sister and co-host, also known as Amber. We're here today to talk about mass seeding. Do you know what mass seeding is, Amber? Uh, I googled it a little bit. So professional. So, say you're a tree, and every year you produce the same amount of seeds. What kind of tree am I? Am I a pretty tree? It doesn't matter. As long as you're the kind of tree that produces nutritious seeds that have a decent chance of surviving and thriving wherever they happen to end up. So you're talking about something like an oak tree or an acorn tree, which are technically the same thing. Sure, you're an acorn tree. You produce nuts or seeds that are so nutritious that animals collect and eat them. Collecting can be a good thing for an acorn tree because, say, a squirrel picks up some of your seeds and they bury them to eat later and then they forget about them because, you know, they're squirrels. Your seeds have been dispersed and buried and now they're hidden, ready to grow. But if squirrel and other animals eat all of your seeds, then you've wasted all your energy making these seeds and you have no rewards. And by rewards, we mean your DNA spreading. So reproducing. Yep, reproducing. I put in all the effort to lay seeds, and I don't have little seedlings. So as a tree, you come up with this great idea. I'm going to make a ton of seeds this year. So many that there's no possible way the squirrels can eat all of them. And they'll end up bearing a lot of them that will grow into trees. Okay. But if you're the only tree that does this, what's to say that... They will just eat all of your seeds and not all the other trees' seeds. So it won't be beneficial for you, and you've wasted even more energy producing more seeds than you needed to. To counteract that, you communicate to all the trees around you. Maybe you say, hey, this year, why don't we make a lot of seeds, so many that the squirrels simply cannot eat all of them. The trees in the area agree with you to produce an excessive amount of seeds and nuts. During that season... The animals in the area gorge themselves, which would cause an increase in their population. And of course, they would end up leaving some seeds buried. So it would be a little bit beneficial to you. However, an increased population of squirrels does not seem beneficial over time. Because obviously, if there's more squirrels, there's more squirrels to eat your seeds. But you tell your friends for the next year, hey, let's save energy this year and make only a few seeds. So how does that help the trees by making less seeds the following year? Because the squirrel population has skyrocketed, and now there is no available food for that population. So there will be a mass die-off of the squirrels. Fast forward another year, and the squirrel population is very small. So you and the other trees don't have to spend a lot of energy producing seeds in order to reproduce. Because there's a limited number of animals around to eat those seeds. So I can just produce how many I want, or I produce an average amount, or what do I do? You could just produce an average amount, or even a slightly less than average amount. Because there's not a lot of squirrels to eat all your seeds. Okay. That's mass seeding in a nutshell. (laughs) Pun intended. It works, and it's awesome, right? Well, not for the squirrels, because they get this massive explosion population they have all these babies and the next year there's no food to feed them and they all die exactly and what if the squirrels happen to learn to speak tree and they hear the trees having this conversation among themselves they'd have to know a lot of seeds were coming and this would encourage them to have a ton of babies and they'd eat all your seeds and again it would be a giant waste but can squirrels understand tree language do 
trees even understand tree language? Are they like ants? Maybe. We're not sure. There's been some studies to show that the animals might be able to predict when the trees are going to have a mass seeding. But then there's also evidence to say that that doesn't happen. So, in other words, we have no clue if squirrels understand. We're still not completely sure how the trees talk to each other. Fair point. I mean, a lot of trees share the same root system, though. Well, those are actually technically the same tree. Yeah, okay. And then the problem comes up, what if one tree decided to be selfish and decided to not do what the other trees did that year? So in the year of the mass seeding, they put out a low amount of seeds that year. And then the year of the low squirrel population, they put out a ton of seeds. They would be cheating the system. And that gets into the game theory and the prisoner's dilemma, which is interesting, but we don't have time for that. True, but so maybe trees are better than human and they all all do it together. Mass seeding can be a way to manipulate the animal population that feeds on your seeds to advantage you. As long as the animal populations cannot predict what is going to happen, and as long as all the other trees play along. That's really interesting that trees can manipulate animals to their advantage. It really is. This is Better Than Human. This is your favorite comedy slash science podcast. We discuss the best and worst of humanity and try to prove humans aren't the epitome of evolution by showing how great and awesome everything else in the universe is. Thanks, ladies. Some plants scatter their seeds with a real bang. By the bright blue Mediterranean Sea, there's a plant that disperses its seeds super soaker style. It's called, completely maturely and in no way prurient or amusing, the squirting cucumber. (laughs) Picture a fuzzy gherkin hanging from the top of a flower stalk about a foot high. When a squirting cucumber ripens, The slightest vibration causes it to shoot off the stem, spraying out seeds in a jet of goo as much as 20 feet or 6 meters away. You really have to see it to believe it. Link in the show notes and on the website. It's an example of an unusual adaptation called rapid plant movement, like a Venus flytrap closing its jaws. Plants don't have muscles like animals do, but they do have rigid cell walls. These can hold back high water pressure, and that's what's at work here. The squirting cucumber's explosion is a one-time event powered by the release of pressure that builds up inside the fruit as it ripens and fills with liquid. The squirting cucumber is related to the cucumbers in your salad, and some gardeners plant them as a novelty, but do not eat them as they are poisonous. It's easy to stay safe from the squirting cucumber. To stay safe from the South American dynamite tree, you need to stay about 140 feet or 45 meters away from it. Its seed cases are shaped like little decorative pumpkins. As they dry out, the individual ridges holding the seeds start to shrivel. They shrink so much as they dry that they break away from the central axis. And suddenly, the whole thing explodes with a bang like a gunshot. The inch-long seeds fly out at speeds of around 230 feet or 70 meters per second. Despite this inherent danger, some people do plant them as shade trees in the tropics. I guess you have to take the bad with the good. But how efficient a method is an exploding seed case? 
Scientists use high-speed photography to measure the velocity and angles of the seeds and found that the shape and angle of the seed capsules gives the seeds a maximum range to fly, like startling little botanical frisbees. Speaking of frisbees and other fun toys and games, thanks to Greenbrier Games for donating prizes for the latest round of trivia. It's getting increasingly hard to come up with questions that are just the right level of difficult, so I'm moving trivia to an every other week format. When it's up, you can find it at yourbrainonfacts.com trivia. We've done smallest, biggest, fastest, how about oldest seeds? Let me add one condition there, because archaeologists have found seeds with prehistoric animals and in cave dwellings. What is the oldest seed that's actually germinated? I can't store seeds properly for more than a year, so it really impresses me that Israeli scientists were able to sprout a date palm seed about 2,000 years old. That upsets the previous record holder, a lotus found in a dry lake bed in China by about 700 years. The date seed was one of several found in the 1960s by archaeologists excavating Masada, a fortress in the Judean desert destroyed by the Romans in 73 CE. In 2005, three seeds were planted at the Lewisburg Natural Medicine Research Center. No report says to why then and not sooner. Of the three, one seed germinated. It didn't just sprout, it grew. Three years later, the palm was a healthy, three-foot-tall plant. The team named the tree Methuselah, after the biblical figure said to have lived to the age of 969. When the tree was moved to a bigger pot at 15 months, the team retrieved fragments of the shell, and radiocarbon dating showed that it dates back to the time of the Masada. It makes sense when you say that the dry desert conditions preserved the seeds, but how does that actually work? The lack of humidity reduces the generation of free radicals, which cause oxidation and therefore damage. This just in, Methuselah the date tree is not the oldest viable seed plant. It's been beaten by 30,000 years. A Russian team discovered seeds of the Selene stenophylla, a flowering plant native to Siberia, buried by some Ice Age animal near the banks of the Kolyma River. Radiocarbon dating confirmed the seeds were 32,000 years old. The seeds were found 124 feet or 38 meters below the permafrost, surrounded by layers of bones from mammoths, bison, and woolly rhinoceros. There were both mature and immature seeds. While the mature seeds were damaged, there was still viable plant material inside the immature seeds. The team extracted that material, placed it in vials, and successfully germinated the plants. The plants grew, flowered, and after a year, created seeds of their own, which is a sentence I feel disproportionately happy to be reading. As the plants grew, the researchers saw that the flowers of the ancestral plant were a slightly different shape from the modern Stelophylla flowers. Speaking of surprises being revealed, I've got one coming up for you. I'll be doing an unboxing video soon. What could a podcaster be unboxing, you might well ask. I won't say yet, but you'll have a chance to win one. 
In the meantime, hop over to the social media at Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod to answer a poll about the most convenient time for the live stream to take place. I'd like as many people as possible to have a chance to win. And while you're there, remember that word of mouth, or in this case, word of mouse, is still the best way to help your favorite podcast. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. There are many organizations around the world who have taken up the banner of seed preservation. Nearly 2,000, in fact. Most of us have heard of the seed vault at Svalbard, the cool-looking tower sticking out of a Norwegian mountain, where the permafrost ensures that the seeds are preserved without need for electricity. Incoming Futurama reference. Behold! The Svalbard Global Seed Vault! Since 2008, the vault has preserved seeds of every known plant species in case of extinction. Oh, what's your business pokey-poking about the seed vault, the guardian of mankind's precious botanical heritage there? Oh, we just want to come in and rummage about a bit. Oh, so, okay. If you don't want to go quite so far north, perhaps fly to Old Blighty and visit the Millennium Seed Bank at Kew Gardens in London. In 2009, they reached their goal of preserving and cataloging seeds from all of the UK's native plant species, with the odd exception for things that don't store well. They also work with a network of nearly 100 other seed banks around the world to preserve species in situ, where they are, and to provide backup samples in case the specimens at one seed bank are compromised. Alongside the three attractive glass buildings, which house the collection, a laboratory, and the public exhibit space, 
and really is quite fetching. There are raised garden beds, each an example of a threatened landscape in Britain. If there was a seed bank that looked like a nice day trip, Kew Gardens would be it. It's not the most important seed bank, though, or the bank that has given its collection the most protection. For that, we have to go back to World War II, with an abrupt shift in tone. In September 1941, German forces began to push into Leningrad, before and since called St. Petersburg. They laid siege to the city, choking off the supply of food and other necessities to the two million residents. The siege of Leningrad didn't last a month, or two, or even six. The siege lasted nearly 900 days. Among the two million Soviet citizens struggling to survive were a group of scientists ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for the good of mankind. While they did, their leader, Nikolai Vavilov, a Russian geneticist and plant geographer, lay dying in a Soviet prison a thousand miles away. Vavilov had traveled the world on what he called a mission for all humanity. He led 115 expeditions in 64 countries to collect seeds of crop varieties and their wild ancestors. Based on his notes, modern biologists following in Vavilov's footsteps are able to document changes in the culture and physical landscape and the crop patterns in those places. To study the global food ecosystem, Vavilov conducted experiments in genetics to improve productivity for farmers. He was one of the first scientists to really listen to farmers, traditional farmers, peasant farmers around the world, and why they felt seed diversity was important in their fields, says Gary Paul Novin, ethnobiologist and author of Where Our Food Comes From, retracing Nikolai Vavilov's quest to end famine. All of our notions about biological diversity and needing diversity of foods on our plates to keep us healthy sprung from his work 80 years ago. Vavilov's hope was that one day science could work with agriculture to increase each farm's productivity and to create plants that could grow in any environment, thus bringing an end to world hunger. As Russia fought its way through revolutions, anarchy, and most importantly to Vavilov, famine, he went about storing seeds at the Institute of Plant Industry in the Pavlov's Experimental Station. The scientists there collected thousands of varieties of fruits, vegetables, grains, and tubers. Unlike Svalbard and Kew Gardens now, the seeds at Pavlovsk weren't just sort as seeds, but some were perpetuated as plants in the field. This is because some varieties don't breed true from seeds, so they can't be stored as seeds to get the plants you want in the future. There was one obstacle in Vavilov's way. Two really, but one was much greater a threat, that being Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin. The secondary threat was Stalin's favorite scientist, Trofim Lysenko. Lysenko was a dangerously misinformed scientist. Rather than survival of the fittest, where the genes that help an organism survive long enough to reproduce are the ones that get passed on, Lysenko believed that organisms could inherit traits that their parents acquire during their lifetime. So instead of believing that the giraffe with the longest neck can reach food and live to have babies, 
He believed that the giraffe stretched its neck up, and so its baby would have a longer neck because of it. He also believed that if you grafted a branch from a desirable tree onto a less desirable tree, the base tree would improve. His theories about seeds and flowers were equally backwards. It was garbage science at best. At worst, well, we don't need to speculate on that. We saw it happen. Crops failed under the now-mandatory Lysenko systems on the new collectivized farms, which themselves reduced productivity. Lysenko's policies brought on famine. But he was in Stalin's favor, and in the Soviet Union, that was all that mattered. In August 1948, the government outlawed the teaching of and research into classic Mendelian genetics, the pea plant-based genetics we learn about in middle school. This disastrous government interference in the face of widely accepted science and the outcomes it brought are called the Lysenko effect. There was no way Stalin's favorite scientist was going to take the fall for the famine, so Stalin singled out Vavilov, who had been openly critical of Lysenko. He claimed Vavilov was responsible for the famines because his process of carefully selecting the best specimens of plants took too long to produce results. Vavilov was collecting seeds near the Russian border when he was arrested and subjected to 1,700 hours of savage interrogation. World War II was in full swing, and it was impossible for his family to find out what had happened to him. Vavilov, who spent his life trying to end famine, starved to death in the Gulag. Back in Leningrad, some scientists from the Institute of Plant Industry were able to get the bulk of the tuber collection and themselves to another location within the city. A dozen of Vavilov's scientists stayed behind to safeguard the seed collection. At first, it seemed as though they'd only have to contend with the marauding enemy troops breaching the city, seeking to steal the seeds or simply destroy the building. The Red Army pushed the Germans back as long as they could. Nothing moved in or out of the city. Leningrad must die of starvation, Hitler declared in a speech in Munich, November 8, 1941. As the siege dragged on, the scientists then had to contend with protecting the seeds from their own starving countrymen. Food was rationed, but once it ran out, people ate anything they could to survive. Vermin, stray dogs, leather, sawdust, and as so often happens in such dark hours, some ate the dead. Scientists barricaded themselves inside with hundreds of thousands of seeds, a quarter of which were edible just as they are, along with rice and grain. But they did not eat them. The scientists took turns guarding the storerooms in shifts, even as they grew weaker, even as they heard the Germans looting and destroying out in the streets. The only thing that mattered was guarding the collection, safeguarding both the botanical past and future of mankind, and the work of their fallen Vavilov. One by one, the scientists began to die of starvation. One man died at his desk. Another died surrounded by bags of rice. In the end, nine of the twelve scientists did not live to see the end of the siege. 
but not a single grain, seed, or tuber had been eaten. According to author Nivon, one of them said it was hard to wake up, it was hard to get on your feet and put on your clothes in the morning, but no, it was not hard to protect the seeds once you had your wits about you. Saving those seeds for future generations and helping the world recover after war was more important than any single person's comfort. Unlike many of the 85 million deaths in World War II, those nine scientists' lives were not wasted. Today, many of the crops that we eat come from crossbreeding with varieties that the scientists saved. As much as 80% of all of the pre-collapsed Soviet Union's fields were sown with varieties that originated in Valavov's collection. It is a sad tale, I know, but it is also an amazing one that so few of us hear, which is odd when you consider how many thousands of hours of World War II documentaries there are. And the world nearly lost Vavilov's collection a second time. In 2010, the land it sits on was being sold to a developer who planned to build private homes on the site. The collection can't just be moved. There are all sorts of complex legal and technical issues, including quarantines. The public called for the site to be preserved, and in 2012, the Russian government took formal action to prevent the land from being conveyed to private buyers. And as far as I can find, it still safely stands. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Back to the handle watermelon. Even if Art Combe had wanted to know how old the seeds he found were, the technology to date them didn't yet exist. Of the 200-ish seeds in the bottle, only about 12 that he planted germinated. They were unlike any watermelon he had ever seen. An oval-shaped watermelon that tapered at the end into a perfect handle, possibly bred to make the plants easy to transport. But people wouldn't want to buy a weird-looking melon, he figured, so Combe crossed them with modern melons. Still, rogue handles would appear in his field. Luckily for the variety, Combe shared some of the original seeds with a friend of his, Cliven Bundy, who bred the line faithfully and shared seeds with neighbors for 30 years. Bundy later got in a dispute with the federal government over grazing his cattle on public land, got in a standoff with them in 2014, and his son Eamon took over the Mahler National Wildlife Refuge in 2016 with a bunch of his gun-toting redneck cronies, but that's another show. Stay tuned for another podcast you might enjoy. Remember, you can always find the sources and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Are you into top 10 lists? What about pop culture? Or maybe you're just a nerd like us. We've got a show for you, loser. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Brandon. We're the hosts of The Tennis Podcast, a comedy and edutainment podcast covering a new top tennis list every week, including fun facts and trivia. We've covered lists such as the top 10 most popular 90s songs on Spotify. The deadliest animals. The worst U.S. presidents. The leading causes of death. The best-selling video game franchises. The most common murder methods. Okay, are you going to give one that isn't about death? The deadliest jobs in America. <sighs> 
Listen to these and countless other top 10 lists every Wednesday at tennispod.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Top horror villains by their kill count. I think we're done here. If you listen to this podcast, there's a good chance to see you will die. We are the 10 Podcast. That's one zero ish Bye. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.